I'm Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today, it's quite an honor for me to have as our guest, Leon Botstein. He is a Swiss-born conductor, educator, and scholar who has been serving as the president of the wonderful Bard College since 1975. At Bard, he is also the Leon Levy Professor in the Arts and Humanities. As well, if that's not enough, he's also the conductor of the American Symphony Orchestra. There's so much to say about this man. I want to just jump right into it because... He's had a rich life and has great experience to share. So welcome to The Caring Economy, Leon. Well, thank you for having me, Toby. So Leon, we always start this show by asking our guests to tell us a little bit about their life story, their narrative. Basically, how did you get where you got? So here we have this kid who was born in Switzerland and somehow made his way to become the president of Bard College, one of the most prestigious liberal arts colleges in America. Can you uh, give us a sort of an abridged version of your your life narrative? Well, there's not that much to tell. I emigrated as a very small child with my parents, who were uh, Russian-Polish Jews, who found themselves, luckily, during the Second World War in Switzerland. They both did their medical school and post-medical degree training in Mm -hmm. Switzerland, and then became young rising stars in the medical faculty of the University of Zurich. But the Swiss were reluctant to give them citizenship. Finally, they gave up. And after 20 years in Switzerland, they emigrated to America Mm -hmm. and uh, made careers here in the United States in academic medicine. They were both on the founding faculty of the Einstein College of Medicine and at the Montefiore Einstein Complex in the Bronx. And... uh, I grew up in the Bronx. We came to America and we settled in in the Bronx and uh, went to public school and um, went to college and uh, nothing particularly exciting about all that. And are you one of many children or are you an only child? No, I'm the youngest of three. Two older siblings, uh, wonderful. One is a pediatric cardiologist and my sister and my brother, all the oldest, is a very distinguished uh, geneticist and molecular biologist. Wow. A very impressive family. So I would assume that your parents played a pretty instrumental role. My parents left, um, among other things, two very distinctive legacies with all of us. Number one, never came home complaining about their work. One of the things I learned from them is um, if you want your children really to accomplish something in the world, one of the things you have to communicate to them is that how much you love your work and you love working with people. People come home and complain, bitch and moan about what's happened at the office and their coworkers and their bosses and their jobs. And the children who pick that up develop a jaundiced view of how unpleasant working is. Mm. Uh, the second thing that they communicated is a very high level of idealism. Both my parents did not believe that medicine is something you should make money from, that the healthcare is something that is a service Mm -hmm. and a service uh, to which every human being has a right. 
and that to monetize it by uh, you know asking for office visits that are unnecessary, for prescribing things that people don't need, for doing procedures that um, may not be uh, called for, for practicing uh, medicine because you can make money from it or somebody else makes money from it, is mm. totally dishonorable. They were idealists, and we learned from early childhood that um, if you want really to... Uh, develop some meaning, whatever you do in the world, you have to do for a purpose that mm -hmm. is larger than profit mm -hmm. or simply uh, making yourself famous or satisfying some, some more narrowly selfish notion of your own ambition. So that dovetails beautifully with your, your arrival at Bard, which is I think among one of the most progressive liberal arts colleges in the country, maybe for our listeners who aren't familiar with Bard, could you give us a quick overview of its history and its mission? Bard um, is a college whose primary campus is 100 miles north of New York, across from Kingston in the town of Red Hook. It was founded in 1860 by the Episcopal Church. So the Episcopal Bishop of New York is still on our board. It's non-sectarian. But it um, was originally founded as a kind of training for young men who had uh, the intention of entering the Episcopal ministry. That's what it did for a very long time. It was called St. Stephen. And then somewhere in the 1920s, after the First World War, Franklin Roosevelt uh, became a trustee. He was an Episcopalian and lived close by in Hyde Park. And... Um, it uh, was a very small place, 100 men, small campus, 40 acres, and was not well funded. It, uh, all its alumni were priests and in the church. And uh, Franklin Roosevelt, who as a trustee thought, you know, the best thing for this place would be to be part of Columbia. So in 1928, Eleanor and Franklin Roosevelt uh, arranged for the merger, that is to say, Columbia absorbed Bard. And until 1948, Bard became an undergraduate college in Columbia's system, giving Columbia degrees. But in, 19, in the middle of war, the country ran out of men going to college. People went to the war. Bard wanted to admit women. Barnard objected. And the Columbia trustees said to Bard, look, you can pull out independently. By that time, the name of the college had been changed under Columbia's aegis, to honor the founder of the college, John and Margaret Bard, uh, who were wealthy individuals who had the estate on the Hudson that gave Bard College the land, they founded it. So Bard became independent, and the first degree given to women was in 1948. So Bard had a kind of second rebirth, it was founded in 1860, and that rebirth was in the late 40s. It um, developed its uh, progressive heritage to some extent uh, in the under Columbia, it developed a very progressive, John Dewey-like curriculum. But when it became co-ed and independent, uh, it became well-known for the arts and for literature. Mary McCarthy, Ralph Ellison, Saul Bellow taught here in the 50s. And it got a notorious reputation owing to Walter Winchell, who called it the Little Red Whorehouse on the Hudson. This is in the days of virulent... I heard that one. <laughs> ...anti-communism, yes. It remained very small until the 60s, and it, then it began to grow. Uh, it was, you know, 200 students, 250 students in the 50s. 
Uh, and um, but it was so small and um, that uh, the economics of it became troublesome. Um, and I arrived in 1975, mm-hmm. I think I had 600 students or something like that. Mm-hmm. And since then we've grown and now on our campus, main campus, we have a little over 2000 students, 200 of which of whom are graduate students. And then we have a network of public high schools, Bard High School early colleges, eight of them in six cities. We have the largest prison education program in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a large international network of campus in Berlin, and we have collaborative degree programs on the West Bank, uh, in Bishkek, the American University of Central Asia, on partnerships with um, many um, institutions around the world. And we have a very prominent arts forming and visual arts operation with a PhD program in New York and the decorative arts and a museum there, exhibition facility. We have the Center for Curatorial Studies, which is contemporary and 20th century art. We have a very distinguished MFA program. So we are um, also well known in the art, very fine science, undergraduate science operation, environmental studies operation. So we're thriving. Some of the things you touched upon there, Bard Berlin, my pal and former colleague, Bendetta Rooks is there in external affairs. I've observed through her eyes what you've done with refugees from Syria and uh, and now I believe Ukraine. It's amazing effort you're doing to be part of a solution. I know the Bard Prison Initiative and Max and that whole thing and how you've expanded that network. I know you're at Grinnell and some other schools. That's That takes real commitment of resources, of talent, and a philosophy, it seems to me. How have you maintained that focus and the shared commitment toward those kinds of what I would describe as very progressive and important solutions, for lack of a better word. We also are the place with the largest number of Afghan refugees as students. We have, mm. We'll have in the fall 80. We had 35 this spring. We mm. were instrumental in getting almost 400 Afghan students out of Kabul at the fall of Kabul. So the answer to your question is a pretty simple one. Barred because it was very small and really wasn't independent until after the Second World War. So it's young. Mm-hmm. It was part of the Episcopal Church and part of Columbia. And because it was relatively poor, it wasn't a rich institution. It wasn't Williams or Amherst or Swarthmore, mm-hmm. Harvard or Yale. It didn't have a big endowment. Its trustees um, made a very crucial decision in the 70s. And that was to say, either we do something that the country needs, and that's important. Or why exist? I mean, if you're just a country club, there are many country clubs. Mm-hmm. Your country club, you might think, is better than somebody else's country club, but they're pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. And the reason you exist is because your country club members want you to exist. They pay their dues. They help make you a healthy operation. So mm-hmm. if you're Amherst or Vassar or Williams, you have something called alumni. You have a family that pays for it. And they think you're the best thing in, in, in the world. And they're willing to put their money behind it. And you do great. And um, people come to you, um, generations of students, some of them parents went there, and they revel in the consistency, quality, and tradition of their place. Bar didn't have any of that. And therefore, was able to ask the only important question, what needs doing, 
What is the right thing we should do? What is it that other people don't do? What is it that the country needs? Mm-hmm. And let's make it happen. And it turns out there are a lot of generous people out there, philanthropists, mm-hmm. who aren't tied to their family country club. You know, they're not tied to um, where their parents went or even where they went. Um, they are looking for higher education that uh, represents quality and a cause. Mm-hmm. And we were able to raise the money against an idea, higher education for incarcerated prisoners, higher education for young adolescents in the inner city who are being lost because the school system fails them, higher education in countries that don't have an access to a high quality liberal arts education, higher education for refugees or migrants, support of the arts that don't make money, things that are not commercial ventures that end up on screen or on Broadway or Netflix, causes that are worth fighting for. Can you tell us a little bit more about the decision process or how, I believe this was when you were a new president, that 70s conversation. How did that, how did that process unfold where you said, we're going to be purpose-oriented and fill a need that's not being addressed? Was that the trustees and you, or how did it happen? Well, the trustees deserve the credit. So the uh, the people who hired me, David Schwab, who is still alive and a life trustee, chaired the process, and William Ruger, who has since died, both alumni, one from the 40s and one from the 50s, they were very wise, and they said, exactly, let's make something important out of this, or let's close it. Mm. We don't have the money just to survive on family loyalty. It was a process of trial and error. You know, we made a kind of a list of the things that are important. The most important thing was to make the liberal arts, the actual curriculum, work. Now, every college catalog you pick up has the same rhetoric. It's like every religion talks about God and goodness and love your neighbors thyself and Mm -hmm. has all the right rhetoric. But the congregation doesn't always behave quite that way. It goes in one ear and out the other. I don't envy any pastor, any (laughs) priest, any rabbi, because all the things they say seem not to stick. Why are we a country of killings? Why are we a country that has regressive laws just now added to by this uh, preposterous decision about the right uh, for an abortion, Um, a decision about gun carrying. I mean, the most incredible offense to the basic principles of Christianity, for example, and we claim to be a Christian nation. Every college catalog says wonderful things about how people should learn to be critically curious, uh, to be able to use English language, to write and read and think, have numeracy, to be oriented and um, have an open mind and uh, understand the processes of science. Well, it turns out people graduate college um, with an incredibly low level of these skills or information. So our first task was trying to make sense out of the rhetoric of the liberal arts. The The second question was, who has access to this kind of high quality education? The third was say, you know, um, who needs protection? Among other things that need protection are the arts, dance, theater, um, mm. music, 
that need the protection of a kind of university framework. Things ought to be simply driven by fame and popularity. And uh, so as we made this list, some things didn't quite work out, but it was a trial and error. And also it was which things were practical. Anybody mm. can have a good idea. The world is filled with good ideas. The difference is, can you make a good idea a reality? Can you make it happen? Mm -hmm. And that requires good people to join you. You can't do it yourself. And you need people who are willing to invest. So we became like a venture capital firm. We came up with this idea. Well, this idea didn't work too well. We got a couple of investors. It didn't go anywhere. We had another idea that um, turned out to be good, but for the wrong reason. And we kept investing in it. We had a couple of ideas that were right and worked, and people invested in them. So it was a constant give and take of finding good ideas and trying to make them work. And mm -hmm. we became a kind of proving ground. Yeah, an incubator. For, sort of. for, for, yeah, incubator for good ideas. Yeah. And higher education needed that. And uh, I'm proud to say we've been very successful. I would say that's been my observation. That's a perfect segue back to sort of those independent-minded funders, or in this sort of metaphor, the investors. Uh, George Soros, he's been very generous to the college, particularly this past year with the matching grant he's put together. I believe it's half a billion from him. And then you're well underway to achieving the other half to bring up nearly a billion dollars in an endowment. Talk about that. How did you score that, so to speak? And, and what doesn't the public know about that that they should know or... Any it's a great question. There are several answers. First of all, it's interesting to use the word scoring. Scoring is a sports metaphor, you know, and when you score either in baseball or basketball, it's a split second. This is not a split second. Major philanthropy isn't done overnight. 18 months ago or so, $500 million endowment challenge, and I'm pleased to say that we've met the challenge. Wow. So we've raised $500 million in response to it, in gifts and pledges. He's been very generous. Uh, he's giving us the money, and he needed uh, to know that we gotten gifts and irrevocable commitments to raise $500 million in response to his $500 million. How did that come about? Well, it came about beginning in the 1980s when Bard entered an area which was helping scholars and students in nations that had no free expression. So Mr. Soros at that time was investing in Hungary and Eastern Europe in an effort to break the monopoly of the Soviet empire and of Russian and Soviet communism in Eastern Europe. And we, with the help of the Ford Foundation, began to bring young dissident scholars and writers from these places that had no free expression to liberal arts colleges in the United States. It was a scheme which was felt to be practical, safe for the artist, because the person was in a relatively secluded um, and not very visible place, so their families back home in an autocracy or tyranny were not put in danger, and they right. could work freely without restraint. It was a great idea, and we brought over a Hungarian writer who had been imprisoned writing a book called The Velvet Prison, and Miklos Harashti, and he came as one of these fellows to Bard. 
And we brought others out and placed them in different liberal arts colleges. Mr. Soros heard about this and we met and we began to do things together, so to speak, on behalf of human rights and um, free expression issues. So mm -hmm. when the wall fell, we co-ventured a 25-year-old project, wonderful project in higher education with Russia, University of St. Petersburg, until we were thrown out by Putin on mm. the run-up to the Ukraine war. So we began to do a bunch of stuff abroad on, in the West Bank, in Central Asia, and in attempting to improve higher education in places that needed it. The gift that he gave was after almost 40 years yes. of working together with the Soros Foundation and on behalf of um, human rights, uh, higher education causes, freedom of expression causes. So it's ironic because, of course, the demonization of Mr. Soros by the right, yes. the, um, the way in which uh, the old anti-Semitic uh, trope of yeah. conspiracy theory dating from the forgery of 1903 of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. It's a tragedy, but um, it's real uh, mm. how much prejudice and hate is filled, especially over the internet. But um, in our case, he's been exceptionally generous uh, to the building of our, of our institution. I second your observation that this is a, a long-term relationship kind of process, institutional advancement, philanthropy. And I think it's better that it's that way because you don't want sort of checkbook philanthropy or one-offs. You want a partner or a set of partners who are with you for the long haul, which clearly George Soros, the Open Society, his family have been. I think you have one family member even on your board, if not. Yes, yes, we do. And and we also have other families, uh, Leon Levy, uh, Jim Ottaway locally, um, many families who've been exceptionally generous. Um, Marlies Hessel, who founded the uh, Center for Curatorial Studies, uh, Dick Fisher and Jeannie Fisher and Emily Fisher. I mean, I can name uh, countless who have gi given exceptionally. Um, and um, you can't build an institution with one donor. No. You can't be dependent on a single donor. You have to have a varied constituency. And I also want to say that many alumni and parents have joined in this effort and uh, have been invaluable. Ladies and gentlemen, again today on The Caring Economy, I'm honored to have as our guest Leon Botstein, who is the president of Bard College. I mentioned in the past about a book I read a couple of years ago, The Coddling of the American Mind by two NYU professors, John Haidt and uh, Greg Lukanoff. And I wonder, do you find that students are showing up at Bard campus less prepared, ill-prepared, or coddled such that you're playing more of a parenting role than you might have, say, 10 or 20 years ago? I wouldn't put the change quite the same way that this book and these, these writers have. Mm -hmm. So several things have changed. Number one, the society has asked of colleges to return to an old habit, which was regulating the private life of students through Title IX, mm -hmm. um, issues of sexual harassment and of um, discrimination. Colleges are being held responsible by the law, state law and federal law, to adjudicate and account for and indirectly control the civility of the behavior of undergraduates. Uh, that's a role which wasn't present in the 70s or 80s. So that's changed. Mm -hmm. 
The second thing that's changed is the attitude to parenting. You know, in the 60s and 70s, there was the generation gap. And uh, parents and children quarreled and had difficulty. And um, uh, the situation changed. Parents have become more involved. That's where we get the idea of the helicopter parent, the parent that is engaged in protecting uh, their, their children, which is perfectly understandable. The third thing, of course, is that there has been a shift in the way we prepare children to become adults in terms of criticism, a way of teaching in which uh, you could criticize without giving a sugar coating. I remember being yelled at. And sometimes that was a compliment because you had a teacher who was crazed by either how lazy you were or how little you were prepared and had more expectations of you. And um, might say, how could you say something so silly, you know, and that you would get a paperback, com- you know, completely filled with red markings and a C or a D or an F. And the reason wasn't that the teacher was mean or cruel. The teacher was saying, listen, you think you want to write something that's worth reading? This isn't, you know, and uh, wake up. And so the idea of criticism and not fearing that it'll be taken uh, as offense, the ability to um, to be ironic and crack a joke without anybody saying, "Well, you know, I'm offended you know, offended by that." Yeah. Um, it was before identity politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother tells a wonderful story. She was a student in a seminar by the great psychoanalytic theorist Carl Jung, and in Switzerland, in Zurich, and she said something in the seminar. She must have been a postdoc. She was a resident. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a graduate seminar. And uh, Jung turned to the rest of the class, pointed to my mother and said, you see, that's a typical Jewish way of thinking. Now, my mother thought, hey, he's an idiot, but she stayed in the seminar. You know, uh, he obviously was both anti-Semitic and brilliant. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, and uh, so as the lone woman in the seminar, she you know, she's stuck to her guns. So we are in a different time where sensitivities are much higher. Mm-hmm. And we have to think twice about how we deliver criticism and um, uh, how we um, persuade students that mm-hmm. by urging them to do better, uh, we're not insulting them. No, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Um, and I think there's nothing wrong with adapting the way you teach to the expectations of a new generation. The resilience um, to to criticism or defeat or failure is is less pronounced. Uh, I, I wasn't there, but uh, I imagine that the GIs that came back from World War II, uh, who went back to college under the GI Bill, those must have been a tough bunch of, of students. You know, criticism... Uh, failure or bad grade, you know, was in a perspective that they had learned on the battlefield, which, you know, made them understand it without having to worry about it. Um, I would say that over time, our students have gotten better and more energetic and more creative and uh, more committed. They've lost a kind of anti-intellectualism, which was very prominent in the counterculture of the late 60s, early 70s. So over the years I've been at Bard, I have to say uh, with great pride that the student body has been ever more impressive. But there certainly is a shift 
in the way we use our position as teachers uh, and are more aware, especially post-pandemic, of the vulnerabilities and sensitivities of our undergraduates. That sort of takes me to another question, which is about the sort of polarization in the world, in our country, in our towns. And I've heard you speak on many occasions very eloquently about how the academy is a place where we want to have different views and opinions and be able to discuss them in a civil way. And I think that is one of the critical services that you and the Bard Education provides. My little college of Hampton, Sydney, I think did the same. But if you don't have the opportunity to go to Bard or Hampton, Sydney, how do you, outside of Bard, outside of even our community of Red Hook, how do you help knit this nation back together? If I had the answer, you know, I would be a prophet, but I'm not. So the only thing I can suggest is that we need to cultivate our capacity to listen and get other people to listen with empathy, even if we disagree. And that a democracy is about being able at some point to agree to disagree, mm-hmm. to compromise, empathetically understand the other point of view. And I have to believe that my mind can be changed. I, I have to believe that um, if someone makes a good argument, I can change my mind. And we have to keep that conversation alive in democracy. In order to do that, Correct. we, I think, have to keep the range of our freedoms wide. So, Leon, I know we're running light, uh, tight on time. I have two quick, qu- not quick questions, but two more questions I want to ask you if you have the time. Mm-hmm. One is about your wonderful wife, Barbara, and the other is about the role of tenure. So why don't we start with tenure? Is it still relevant today? Is it an obsolete model? The academic security that comes with tenure, is it serving us well? Tenure is, is with us. It is both uh, an effort to protect academic freedom, which does need protection. I, I, I wouldn't know of a system that's better than uh, imperfect as tenure is in the protection of mm-hmm. academic freedom. The other is it's a means of job security. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that sense, as a method of job security, it's an awkward instrument, uh, like a, a magnetic handshake that in some people, um, you know, getting a job for life, I don't have tenure as the president of Bard. I can be fired tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Most of us live without a guaranteed job for our lives. I'm not sure that's a bad thing. You know, I think fear is a perfectly constructive motivation. Mm-hmm. People ask me, you know, why do I work? Because I have to. Uh, uh, People often ask composers, why did you write uh, that piece of music? And it isn't because I was sitting around and inspiration came to me. No, somebody paid me for it. You know, someone asked me to write um, this piece. Uh, And uh, there's no nothing wrong with that. That's a great reason. As a job security, it it is um, not the only way to get job security, but it's It's an instrument I think the public has less and less tolerance for, but I think it's not in any danger of going away. We have to have you come back a second time just to talk about your your orchestral life and the music part of your life, because it's a whole whole nother amazing part of your life. Well, Um, that's what I started out. That's what has always been my purpose, and that's been my profession. And as you kindly asked, my wife, Barbara Haskell, is one of the great art historians and curators of her generation. And uh, 
a source of pride for the whole family. Yeah, you both are awesome and inspiring. But tell me real quickly, how do you and Barbara, such a dynamic couple, how do you, how you, your time constraints are what they are? How do you make time for each other? How do you celebrate each other? How do you optimize, for lack of a better word, your time together? I think most people have a pretty rigid idea of what makes for a good relationship. The time we've actually ever lived together full time is during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And that's after 40 years of marriage. So, you know, uh, uh, there are many ways a, a relationship uh, can flourish um, and, um, and there's no set pattern and uh, she's extremely independent and self-sufficient and with a fantastic career. We, I, and I probably um, was a passable father by benign neglect. <laughs> Such a modest man. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's been such an honor today to sit down with the maestro, with the president himself, Leon Botstein from Bard College. Leon, I'm going to let you have the last word. Any pearls of wisdom or what would you like our listeners to know about you, about Bard or about life? Well, I would like the listeners to know that um, go to concerts, support musicians, um, help us make sure that um, a whole musical tradition survives the pandemic and uh, uh, flourishes in the decades ahead. Here, here. Thank you, Leon Botstein. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at T Usnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing The Caring Economy with your friends and colleagues.